Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the amazing gift that is Jesus. Thank you so much that he is the greatest treasure. And thank you so much for the Holy Spirit, the helper. I thank you your promises prove true that he does come to us, that he does fill our lives, that you don't leave us alone, Lord. And we welcome him. We pray that he will help us to know you better this morning. Amen. 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 So Jesus, when he was alive here on earth 2,000 years ago, he would frequently speak to people and address people. And when he did that, he made an appeal, an invitation, if you like, to step into a whole new kind of life, a whole new kind of lifestyle. He didn't have the word Christianity in those days. Uh, It hadn't been invented yet. But since it has been invented, we might as well use it. So he invited people to step into a new lifestyle, a new way of doing their existence. And I think very often we, we tend to overcomplicate religion, don't we? We tend to overcomplicate Christianity because I think actually for, for, for the majority of the people that Jesus met, the invitation that he gave to them could really be boiled down into two words. He said, follow me. That was it. Follow me. And actually, if you were alive in those days and you wanted to become a disciple, not just of Jesus, but actually of any other rabbi, in those days, rabbi didn't mean like the, the, the pastor or the vicar of a synagogue. That, that only came later. It, 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 meant, it meant somebody who would take a load of young people under their wing. Someone who would mentor and nurture and raise these people up in a spiritual way. If you wanted to become a, a disciple of Rabbi Jesus, then actually the instruction to follow me could be obeyed literally. You literally would follow him. And um, for, for Jesus, it wasn't just the 12 disciples, every rabbi had 12 disciples, but actually there were tens of thousands of men, women, and children who who would literally do that. You see this account time and again in the Gospels of of people literally flocking from the the countryside and the towns and the cities, and they would come and they would follow him, and they would sit at his feet. That was the expression they used to kind of learn from from the rabbi. And actually... What they would do, disciples and and, and their teachers, their masters, they would do everything together. It was an invitation to come and live life in very, very close proximity with your your mentor. And they would would travel together, they would eat their meals together, they'd cook together. Very often they'd live together or at least in quite close proximity. They might work a trade together, they would debate together, they'd read the scriptures together, they'd pray together. And, And what would happen actually is... They began to live their lives together in this very close way. They begin to pick up on Jesus' values. They begin to pick up on his ways of dealing with things, how he responded in different situations. They begin to pick up on how he related to God in his rhythms of prayer, his rhythms of life. And, and gradually, their lives would become shaped by him. So imagine if we had a kind of an embedded camera crew. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that Amazon series, All or Nothing. Any of you guys seen that? They started off, um, they basically, they, they embedded a camera crew with an NFL team, and it was all access. Like, you could see the locker room, you could see the coaches' meetings, the games, all those little conversations between the players, all those little bust-ups and arguments, like it was all access. I think they've just done one for Man City, and I think they did the All Blacks rugby as well. It's, it's a fascinating series. But if we could embed a camera crew for a week with Jesus and the disciples, what kind of things would we see? We see them traveling. We see them literally walking the length and the breadth of the country in the dust together, sharing life together, often staying with a a friendly family or sleeping rough, maybe under a tree, just kind of crammed into small homes. I expect there'll probably be a fair amount of banter going on. 
you know, the, the, the guys that were taken on board, these were kind of like 18, 19, 20-year-old blokes. So I could imagine there was a bit of goofing around. I, you know, I, I kind of imagined there Andrew. Andrew was a serious one. He was the disciple of John the Baptist, so he, like, he was hardcore. I can imagine him there at three in the morning going, oh, Jesus, could, could you just get Peter to shut up? <laughs> I don't care how big the fish he caught was. You know, I imagine there'd be a bit of sort of, you know, it's just life together. They cook together. They'd spend time together. And actually, as they did life with Jesus in that way, he began to share his wisdom as a, as a mentor as a rabbi with the disciple. They'd be caught up. They'd see how he decompressed after a hard day. They'd see how he handled criticism. They'd see the things that made him angry. They'd see the things that weirdly didn't make him angry. They'd see how he prayed, how he connected with the Father. And, and then he'd begin to let them have a go at stuff. So he'd begin to let them go and, and have a go at preaching. Have a go at laying hands on a, on a sick person and seeing them get healed. And, and sometimes you'd, you'd see how he lovingly corrected them or sometimes how he gave them a good blasting for their really unloving attitude. You'd see all the, the rough and the smooth of it. And that's, that's discipleship. So when Jesus said, come and follow me, it was an invitation to come and let your life be shaped by this man who was God. And then something began to happen. So in the last few months before Jesus died and went to the cross, he began drip feeding in a certain concept, a certain idea. And initially, the disciples didn't take a great deal of notice with this, and they kind of brushed it off, and they kind of ignored it. And then he kept dripping it in a bit more, and he kept saying it. And after a while, they just began to get really confused. Like, they didn't un- like it didn't quite compute. They didn't really know how that was going to go down. And, and then he kept saying it again and again. And, 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 and after a while, they began to get very, very anxious. Like, they were completely flipping out about what he was saying. And the idea that he was drip-feeding in was this. I'm not going to be around much longer. I'm going back to my father. Where I'm going, you can't come. He says, I, I'm going to die. And three days later, be raised. And, and at first, they kind of brushed it off. And then they, and then they got confused. And, and it kind of came to a head on when they were eating that covenant meal together. We call it the Last Supper now. And, and, and he's, he's really trying to take them through this process of understanding that he's not going to be around any longer. And actually, he's going to send somebody in his place. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to, to, to lead them and guide them and be the one they follow in a very different kind of way from the inside out. Not being led kind of externally by a man, but being led from their inward heart by the Holy Spirit. And, and you can see, if, if you read the account through, the, the disciples are not impressed by this at all. This is not an upgrade in their mind. They are completely flipping out. And he's kind of saying, look, I'm, it's actually to your advantage that I go. I think sometimes we can be a bit like this. For those of you here who are Christians, I think sometimes we have this mentality of, um, oh man, the Christian life is hard. Anyone ever thought that? But you know what? Wouldn't it have been amazing if, if I could have been one of those guys 2,000 years ago and I could have actually met Jesus and talked with him and you know, we could have done the stuff with him. Like, oh, you know, I'd have been an amazing Christian if I lived back then. That's, that's not how Jesus sees it. He says, actually, this is how I designed it to be all along, that your life would be led, you would follow me through the words that I've spoken and through the indwelling, the Holy Spirit being in you and leading you and guiding you. So I want to kind of put it to us this morning that, that job number one, for those of us who have said, you know what, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I believe that he has died for me. 
I believe he loves me in spite of all the things I've ever done wrong. I believe that when he died, he, he completely paid the price for everything that I've done. I'm trusting in him. Job number one for us then is to come and nurture that relationship with the Holy Spirit that he's sending into our hearts. Paul puts it like this in the book of Galatians in chapter 6. He says, what I want you to do, I want you to sow to the Holy Spirit. He says, if you sow to the Holy Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. You're going to reap, your, your life is going to thrive. In other words, he's saying, I, I want you to invest in that relationship. I want you to invest your time and your energy and your focus in your life. I want, to, I want you to make my spirit the, 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 the central part of your days. Ephesians says, actually, we have access through one spirit to the Father because he is God. He gives us access to God. It says, in, in, again, in John's gospel, he says that the spirit will take the things that God is saying. This is a day-by-day promise. Even now, the things that God is saying, and he will reveal them to us. So we, we come to this place where actually the invitation of Jesus has not changed in 2,000 years. Whether you, whether you have been a Christian, a churchgoer, whether you've known him for, for years and years, or whether you're still kind of grappling with it and wrestling with it this morning, actually, Jesus' invitation to you is no different now than it was 2,000 years ago. He's saying, come and follow me. Come and live a life that's so wrapped up in me, that is lived in such close proximity with me, that you're being shaped, that you're being formed, that you're being molded, that you become more like my son. And the invitation is to come and do that as we spend time in the presence of God. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you in just as real, just as tangible as way as if I was sat here having bread and wine with you. I'm going to be with you in your heart. So how do we come to know him? How do we come to know his spirit? How do we cultivate that deep relationship? You know what, like I think any relationship is founded on something, isn't it? It's founded on spending quality time together. Who's read that Gary Chapman book, The Five Love Languages? Anyone done that? If you're married, if you ever think you might be married, get a hold of that book. It's so helpful. You know, I think if the Holy Spirit had a love language, it would be quality time, wouldn't it? That's the foundation of relationships, spending time getting to know one another. There's no substitute for that time. Invite him to come, to soak, to be with you. Get this word open. These are the words that he wrote, and he's weaved himself through every line this book say come and show me Jesus come and show me yourself show me the father he's weaved himself through every thread in that book and how can we expect him to come and operate in our lives what should we expect as we delve into this adventure this journey of knowing him well I can't introduce you to all of that that's something you need to go away and 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 practice and discover for yourself but actually one of the ways that the bible helps us to understand who the Spirit is and how he, how he leads us, how He guides us, how He shapes us, how He disciples us, is by giving us different symbols, different pictures. I think sometimes when we, we get to symbolism in the Bible, loads of us start to freak out. I don't know if you... As a, as a new Christian, I, I started trying to read the book of Revelation, and I got to about chapter 2, and I'm like, ah, the symbols, I can't handle all the symbols, you know. But actually, when, when the Bible gives us pictures, the Bible gives us symbols, they're never there to add confusion. You realize that? They're there to help us understand and to simplify and bring down to earth things that are difficult. We do this in kids' club all the time. So if we're te- anytime we do any teaching points in kids' club, 
we always try and tie it back to an object. We call it an object lesson or a, or a picture or a video or something tangible, something down to earth that we can compare these things to. And the purpose of that is not to bring right royal confusion to our children. Yeah, you think you're going to understand the Bible in here. No, Sonny. No, the point is to root it. The point is to earth it, to give us an, an entry point that we can begin to explore the things of God. So when the, the Bible gives us, and there's, there's far more of these than I could possibly have time for this morning. When the Bible gives us these symbols, these pictures of, of who he is and how he works, they're there to help us to understand him. It's something we can latch hold of. We can talk with him about it. We can say, would you, Holy Spirit, would you come and give me understanding about this? I'd love to do so many of these, but I want to, um, I want to spend some time worshipping and encountering God. So we're going to just do a few. We'll see how time goes. The first picture that we see incredibly commonly of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is that of water. Sometimes he's, he's shown coming as rain. Sometimes he's shown coming as, as a river, the river of God. Jesus actually said this very explicitly. He said, if anyone is thirsty, he's talking about that deep thirst, that deep desire for fulfillment that we need deep down in, in the soul of each one of us. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. It's a funny old phrase, isn't it? Have you thought about that? And he says, the one who believes in me, streams of living water. I guess what he was talking about is flowing water, really. It's not stagnant, it's not a pond, it's not a pool. It's, it's fresh all the time. Streams of living water are going to flow from within them. And then if you were confused at that point, John interprets the symbol for us. And he says that he, he, he spoke about the Holy Spirit who was going to fill their lives. Because actually there's a, there's a quenching, there's a desire, there's a satisfying in every single one of us that needs fulfilling. I think there's a, there's a very common thread. If you, if you speak with people or you hear with people who've ever got to the top of their game, you know, maybe the top of their profession, the top of their, um, their, their artistry, the top of their sport, the top of their world, the top of music, whatever it might be, they've, kind of, they've climbed the ladder, so to speak, and they've got there. And there's a universal experience of those people that they suddenly realize it is incredibly empty. And I've heard it time and again after people that they spent their lives striving after something. They, they became the greatest, as it were, and realized that it was hollow. And actually, there are those places in our lives that need quenching and need satisfying. And God has designed us and made us in a way that actually only that relationship with him through the Spirit will satisfy. Psalm 46 says this. says, there is a river, speaking of himself, whose streams make glad. They bring joy to the city of our God, the people of our God. That's the joy that we need. In fact, um, one of the most common pictures of the river in Scripture is it's flowing, that river of God suddenly touching down. I, I won't read the passage in Ezekiel 47. I need, I need to rush on, but go and, go and look at it. It's, it's amazing. I don't know if any of you saw on the BBC News website, um, it's about a couple of weeks ago, there was, there was some amazing, um, a kind of an, a phenomenal photographer had been to some of the desert areas around southern Africa. And they've had some unusual rainfall in that place over the last few weeks. And, and what happens when the, when, the, when the streams of water, when the, when the rain came and touched down on those dry, very barren places... Suddenly, life springs up. Suddenly, there's vitality. Suddenly, there was this incredible carpet as far as the eye could see through all the dunes of, of lush growth of, of flowers. They have you know, pictures of models and everything else kind of, kind of lying down, you know, strewn around in the flowers. And it's just this striking kind of image of, of this dry and arid place that had suddenly been in bloom. 
And this is what happens when the Spirit of God touches down as water in a person's life, that those dry and thirsty areas come to life in a way that they never could before. I love what Jack Hayford says about this. He says, when we look at the symbols of the Spirit, the point is not to go, oh yes, the Holy Spirit is like water. Hmm. No, no, the point is to get wet. The point is to allow him to come and renew and revive in a way that never could before. Invite him into your marriage. Invite him into your work. Invite him into your prayer life, your time in the Spirit. Another picture we find very commonly in the Scripture is that of the Spirit being with us as fire. You know, the New Testament says our God is an all-consuming fire. But one of the most amazing prophecies that was made about Jesus just came from John the Baptist before he appeared. And, and he said, listen, I'm baptizing you with water. He was, you know, he, he was saying this waist deep in the river, baptizing people, immersing them. Amazing joy as their lives were turned around. He says, but listen, there's someone coming who's far greater than I am. He's going to baptize you. You're going to be soaked. You're going to be immersed in just the same way. You're going to be covered top to toe with the Holy Spirit and fire. He comes. The Spirit comes as fire. I think you know, don't you? Has, has, anyone, has anyone here ever been on fire? Anyone caught fire in a chemistry experiment or had your hair on fire or... No, it's the kind of thing you understand, isn't it? Yes, there we go. I kind of knew it. I kind of knew it. (laughs) And um, it's it's the kind of thing, you know, if you ask a person, you know, do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know him as fire burning in your heart? The disciples didn't, they said that on the road to Emmaus, didn't they? As Jesus spoke with them, as the Spirit touched their lives, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't our hearts burn within us? And... um, it's the kind of thing you realize that's happened. You know, if you say, you know, has, has, anyone ever, you know, has anyone ever caught fire? It's the kind of thing you tend to know when it's happening. I was reading an old, um, I was telling Matt, Matt's a bit of a Charles Spurgeon fan. I was telling Matt, I was reading a Charles, he, he preached, not this exact message, but it, it was fairly similar, um, a, a couple of hundred years ago. And um, in, in his typically blunt kind of fashion, I can't remember the exact quote, but it started with, Dost thou know? And he was kind of challenging his congregation of, of sort of cultural churchgoers. And he was saying, dost thou know that fire of the Holy Spirit burning in thy heart, convicting you, bringing love? Because if you don't, you don't know him. Well, he's right, isn't he? <laughs> he's right. I'm glad he said it, not me. Oh, yeah, okay. Do you know? Do you know him? When the Spirit comes as fire, the Bible pictures fire, in it, well, in a number of different ways, but... In relation to the Spirit, first of all, he he speaks of him being the one with that burning, zealous holiness, that purifying in our hearts. He speaks of him the way that, that, that a precious metal like gold or silver, something that's very precious to God like we are, being refined in that furnace. As the fire comes, actually what happens is the dross, the compromise, the, the, the mess, the gunk gets gradually rises to the surface and removed. So this is when, when the... You, you, I know many of you probably experienced this. You, the, those times when you feel the Spirit burning in your heart. Actually, those, those compromises, those habits, those relationships, those things that we're accommodating in our lives that keep us from the fullness of walking with Jesus, the fullness of joy, the fullness of life in Him, those things don't stand up to the heat of the fire of His presence. And there's a sweetness to it. There's a beauty to it. There's, there's, there's a love to it. But it's, it's that moment where either we, we, we have to back away. We have to think, no, 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 this relationship that I want to hold on to, it's too precious. Or this, this sin that I want to keep committing, I, I, I'm too into it. 
Or we, be, or we get drawn into the fire and loving and these things get burnt up, removed from our lives. The other sense the Bible gives us of the fire of God is that as of, of, the, of the zealous, passionate love of God. He, he ministers the love of God to us. Jesus, you know, um, Paul said in, 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 in 1 Corinthians, actually the Spirit is the one who comes and reveals the love of God, that, that His Spirit testifies with our Spirit. He helps us to realize, I am loved. I am a child of God. We begin to see that fire in His eyes, first of all for us, as we begin to love ourselves and accept ourselves, and also for others, for the world around us. That compromise is burnt up. It can't stand and that zealous love for ourselves and for others burns in our hearts. It's not a, it's not a sentimental love. It's not a soppy love. It's, it's robust. I, I love the way it's described in, in, at the end of Song of Songs. So you'll find me going back to Song of Songs quite a lot. I've been there a lot recently. This is how he describes it. He says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Each flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Something happens as we begin to receive the Spirit when He comes and touches our lives as fire that actually we're compelled to bring people to Jesus, aren't we? We, we can't be satisfied to, to leave people outside of relationship with Him. We, there's, there's a burning in our hearts. I think this is why so often actually when, if you look at the history of revival, whether that's in the centuries gone by or even we see it even, in, even just in the last few years in different outpourings and breakings out of God's spirit around the world. Very often the, the coming of God in that moment, people talk about the spirit being there as fire. And I think that's because first of all, what, what tends to happen in these times is actually there is, a, there is a filling in the church. There is a refining in the church. I remember an amazing story of um, revival that's been, been burning in the, in the far Canadian Arctic for a long time in these tiny um, Inuit communities. And there was an incredible time of conviction of the Spirit. Actually, as whole communities turned away from drug taking, turned away from pornography, turned away from abuse and satanic music and all, all manner of things. And, and they actually, it sounds a bit cliched, but, but, but they actually burnt a whole load of drug paraphernalia and, and, and porn and all of this kind of stuff. And actually, they, there was such a conviction of the Holy Spirit on those communities that together they said, actually, we, we want to turn our hearts back from God. We're making a clean break from these things. And actually, over the coming years, the result of that act of obedience was more and more of the fire of the love of God coming on those people, coming on the church as whole communities turned around, as the suicide rate came from the highest of the nation to zero. As whole churches were lit up with the love of God and people were baptized and saved. This is how the fire of God works as he brings his love to us. Another common picture we find of the spirit in scripture is that of, of the wind. Actually, in, in both the main languages of the scripture, of the Bible, so in the, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the, the, um, the Greek of the New Testament, the words that we use, the word translated unto us as, as spirit, as Holy Spirit, is is that of the breath or the wind of God. And actually, this is the, the times when Jesus first poured out the Spirit on the disciples. This is how he came. So the first time the, the, the disciples were really, we might say, baptized or, or, or filled with the Holy Spirit was just after he was resurrected. You can see it in John 20. And it wasn't a big spectacular moment like the day of Pentecost. Outwardly, not a huge amount happened. But it says Jesus breathed 
on them. That's that, that breath of God coming from Jesus. And he says they received the Holy Spirit. And something incredible on the inside of them happened at that point. That actually their prayer life was lit up. Their worship began to flow out from them. Suddenly they, they began to understand the scriptures in a way where there was only confusion before. It was like that inner relationship with God that Jesus had promised they'd had was suddenly ignited. These were guys who couldn't even hold it together. You know, they'd been three years in the Jesus discipleship school. They couldn't even hold it together to pray for an hour when Jesus was bleeding in the garden, about to face his darkest hour. This, this was the, the spirituality level of these chaps. And suddenly, Jesus breathes that breath of God, that wind of God upon them. And suddenly, they're there, night and day, ten days, praying in the upper room, calling down Spirit from heaven, they're worshipping, they're full of love, they open the Bible and suddenly they understand, oh, this is, this is what Jesus was talking, oh, this, this means this and we need to take this action. And suddenly they're, they're that inner relationship with God, that delight they had in him was activated. It's the breath, the breath of God, the wind of God on them. But of course that wasn't the full story because they were having a jolly old time, I'm sure, but, but actually something was missing. Jesus says you need to wait for something more. Because as wonderful a time as they were having, enjoying God's presence and being in the Spirit, the Great Commission hadn't budged an inch, had it? To go into all the nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, lift people out of poverty. You know what the baptism rate was? Zero. Not one person had had the gospel preached to them. Not one sick person had had hand laid on them. Not one person had been baptized. Not one meal had been fed to the poor. And then the wind of God comes again. Amen. Not as a gentle breath this time, but a mighty rushing wind on the day of Pentecost that he announces his coming with that wind of the Spirit. We've had a lot of wind the last few weeks, haven't we? I don't know if you noticed. Suddenly it kind of comes out of nowhere. Do you ever find that? You kind of have that still moment. I was walking the kids to school the other day, and it's like, oh, it's, it seems to have quietened down. And by the time they're coming back, suddenly it's swirling around. There's a sudden shift a sudden change in the atmosphere that's what wind is i'm not an expert on these things but i understand it is it's, it's that shift in the atmosphere actually suddenly you know you're in the manifest tangible presence of god suddenly god is here i have to confess i find a slight frustration sometimes not i'm not saying this happens here i'm sure it's never happened here but maybe in, in a number of contexts anyway i can't remember it happening here but you kind of get halfway through worship time and somebody stands up and says the Holy Spirit is here. I think we. And you think, is he? Is he? I don't know. I've I've been in enough of the of the genuine move of God to know not every conference, not every service is actually you, you know when the presence of God is is beating upon you. I used to do a lot of sailing, and um, if 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 you want to go forwards. You've got to find a way to harness that wind, haven't you? You've got to get your sails up. You've got to catch that wind of the Spirit. But you know what? He, he doesn't really work according to our plans and intentions. That's not really kind of how it goes. Actually, you've got to, you've got to understand where he's blowing, when he's being gentle, when he's being fierce. He's a, he's a wild Holy Spirit. Actually, you need to, to learn to work with him. You can't just say, yep, I'm going over there, and I've picked my way of doing it. I've picked my route. I'd like to do it like this. Thank you very much. That's, that's not how it happens when you're saying. You've got, to, you've got to go with how he's moving. He loves to stir up our hearts. I love that prayer, one of the most amazing prayers in the Song of Songs, where the, where the, the bride invites the wind of God to come and blow. She's been using this, this metaphor of the garden, kind of talking about that place of knowing 
knowing Jesus personally. She says, let that, let, let that wind blow. Let the, let the fragrance of love, let the, let the fragrance of my worship come. And I don't know if you find those times, sometimes you just feel like, I'm, I, feel, I feel like I'm just shut down. I feel like I'm just kind of like, I'm a Christian, I love God, of course I do, but I, I, I feel like I need to, I, I can't give expression. I feel, I feel dry. It's the wind of God that comes and stirs that love, that fragrance of love for him. Finally, there's loads I could do. I'm just going to talk very briefly. The Spirit comes as wine. It's the one we don't always like to talk about because, you know, you get drunk on wine. Isaiah, God speaks to the people in Isaiah 55. He says, oh, if anyone thirsts again, come to the waters. Come and buy. Without money, without price, come and buy wine and milk. I'll talk about the milk another day. Come and buy wine. Wine throughout Scripture at least in the context of the Spirit, it means a lot of things. But in the context of the Scripture, speaks about joy, speaks about the delight of our hearts, speaks about pleasure, speaks about that kind of authentic fulfillment that God desired for every single one of us to have. That's why it says in Ephesians, it says, don't get drunk on wine, be filled, though, with the Holy Spirit. You know, for every genuine pleasure, for every authentic fulfillment that God created, you know, Satan has a counterfeit version, right? An imitation version. So when he's exhorting us to be filled, you, you realize that's a euphemism, right? Saying be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying be drunk, don't be drunk on this. There's, there's an authentic version. Come and, come and be rightly intoxicated. Again, the Song of Songs, he says, friends, be drunk with love. Get caught up in him. Find your delight, your joy, your thrill in him. That's why on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were staggering literally under the anointing of the Spirit that came upon them, and people were beginning to make fun of them. They're filled with new wine. That was a euphemism. They, they, were, they weren't saying, oh, look, they've, they've filled up their measure of, of wine. Like if I said to you, my friend went out drinking last night. You understand I don't mean tea. <laughs> he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what we're intending to do. Listen, the first three months... I became a Christian, and every time I encountered the presence of God, I laughed like I was off my face. <laughs> I didn't ask for that. I didn't even really want that, to be quite honest. But God was doing a deep, deep healing work in my heart. Deep healing work in my heart. The next three months, I cried like a baby, but I'll tell you about that another day. Uh, <laughs> it's the wine that comes and brings us the rest and the joy. And sometimes we get a bit stoic about this, and we think, well, that's very nice. You know, when I'm in a place of maturity, then maybe I'll think about that. I don't want to get silly. You know, really what I need, I need some maturity. I need some holiness. Listen, you're not going to have much holiness without the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah said this, as the people were weeping with repentance because they suddenly realized how much they'd screwed up. He says, listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Go home and eat and feast and drink and enjoy. In that amazing psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, where David pours out his heart because he's ruined everything. And midway through, he says, God, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? You're not going to get very far walking with God without his joy. His joy is your strength. He's the one who brings that delight to our hearts.